Hi everyone, good seeing you guys. You know, welcome back if you're coming back from uh, different trips. And if you're a student, I believe you're uh, coming back this week to start your classes again. Uh, so we welcome you uh, back to our church. A privilege of introducing our speaker for today. Uh, his name is Pastor uh, Kevin Carr. Why don't we welcome him with a warm CLC welcome together. I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 21. Psalm 21. We are really excited to be here. Uh, we're excited about your what the Lord is doing near the campus of the University of Minnesota and a church uh, growing under the witch's hat, <laughs> uh, taking, the, uh, taking the devil's ground, as it were, uh, for the cause of Christ. We, um, uh, my wife and I, my wife over here of 59 and a half years now, so 2022 will be uh, a milestone for us. Um, we uh, did serve as missionaries in the, the American Southwest uh, among the Navajo people. Um, since we came up here, we have been back there a number of times. Um, uh, and we've done a number, a, a bit of work with other Native American uh, tribes under the auspices of the PCA. More recently, I've been teaching at the Mokahum Ministry Center, which is an arm of Oak Hills College, and it, uh, it's a kind of a discipleship training center for Native uh, young people uh, to get a one or two year uh, kind of Bible orientation. And, um, uh, it, that excites me because to see uh, Native young people who, who love the Lord Jesus and uh, are burdened for their people, um, it's, and it's, it's just fun and joyous to be part of that. Be, be know that our prayers will be with you as this church continues to seek the Lord's grace moving forward. And so... Um, Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for entrusting us with your, I would say pulpit, but say lectern this morning, or music stand. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 21. I want to just give you two verses, if you're writing them down, um, to kind of give a little bit of an insight of how I read the scriptures. And there are two verses that I think are really important in my, the way I read the scriptures. I think it's the good way, the right way. And the first is Genesis 3.15, where in the aftermath of the fall, uh, the Lord pronounces a curse upon the evil one, upon Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. He shall strike your head and you will strike his heel. We have the picture of the offspring of the woman who, if you trace that all the way through, the Bible has a lot of interest in the birth of children and genealogies and things like that. There's a reason for it because in the Old Testament, the prophets are looking for the seed of the woman. 
In other words, they're looking for Jesus. And when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the coming of the seed of the woman that was predicted all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Now dial forward to the end of Christ's life after the resurrection. Luke tells us that he met two people on the road to Emmaus. And they didn't recognize him. But as he began talking about uh, talking with them, he, we are told that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he opened the scriptures to show what they said concerning himself. Now those two scripture, I think, give us clues as to how to read the Bible. And simply put, you can say, when you read the Bible, look for Jesus. Look for him in the Old Testament. Look for him in the New Testament. And when we read the Psalms, we likewise look for Jesus. How are hints and clues given regarding the Lord Jesus Christ? So that's kind of a background. I didn't plan to say that. But I thought maybe that would be helpful when you see how we look at Psalm 21 today. But I'm going to read Psalm 20 along with it because the two of them, the two of them go together. They really, I think, are intended. They are separate psalms, but they are intended to be read together. And we find this a number of times in psalms that they're, they're, uh, they're intended to be coupled together. So I'll begin with Psalm 20 as a kind of background. Let us hear the reading of God's word. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary. May he give you support from Zion. May he remember your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of the Lord our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know the Lord saves his anointed, and he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving, with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Now that is a psalm that is prayed for the, it is a prayer for the king before he leads his armies into battle. And thus you have references like, uh, you know, we raise our banner, banners, the standards and so forth of the units of the military uh, 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 army that's standing in formation, preparing to go to war. And then there's this statement in verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses. 
the implements, the accoutrements of war. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So there's this picture, this prayer that is being offered to the Lord for the protection and the care of the king and his army as he goes to battle. And we know that David went to battle many times. He was in Israel's history, the warrior king. Saul had slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Songs were written about him. Now read 21. Please follow along. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices, and in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings and you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty are bestowed on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. And your right hand will find out all those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed for you will put them to flight you will aim, their aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, open our hearts to the eyes of our heart that we might see what you would have in store for us. Reveal to us the captain of our salvation, the king of kings, even our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So like the preceding psalm, Psalm 20, Psalm 21 is what we call a royal psalm. A royal psalm is one of many in the Psalter that concerns the regal office of David. And not just David, but his dynasty, his offspring, those who follow him. The royal psalms point to Christ, keeping with the reading that I have suggested to you how we approach the psalms. Royal psalms in particular give us hints of the coming Lord Jesus, the perfect king. David was not a perfect king. He failed miserably so many times. 
But God had promised that a son would sit on his throne forever and ever. And the day came when the Lord spoke to a virgin by the name of Mary. And he said to her, he shall be called by the name of David and of his kingdom there will be no end. So royal psalms point to Christ, the last king of David's line. Now on the face of it, this psalm celebrates the answers to the prayer that is prayed in Psalm 20. I hope maybe you heard that and got that connection so you can see that they belong together. Psalm 20 begins, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the Lord fulfill your petitions, it says in the middle of the psalm. And then in the end, may he answer us when we call. It's a plea to the Lord to answer our prayers. And it responds in Psalm 21 with joyous celebration to the success and the protection that was prayed for in the previous psalm. I hope you see how they're connected together. We'll only look at 21, but let us continue a little bit. We must consider Psalm 21 with what lies before. Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 are, are not the most familiar psalms to us. Um, they're not our go-to psalms. Before Psalm 20 and 21, of course, is Psalm 18, the quintessential D Davidic psalm, one of the longer psalms, and it is clearly, uh, it's prototypical of David in his kingly role and authority. And then Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. That's why I'm an amateur astronomer, by the way. <laughs> it's an opportunity to read that first book of Revelation, the revelation of God and nature, and then to read his book, the revelation of God in scripture. These Psalms are also followed by some of the most familiar. We go to Psalm 22, which is a Psalm that begins with a quotation from Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried from Calvary itself. It's the, it's the Psalm of the cross. Psalm 23 is the Psalm, we call it, of the crook, the, the shepherd's staff. The shepherd's psalm, most familiar of all. And then followed that, the kingly or the royal psalm. So you have in sequence uh, the cross, the crook, and the crown, as it were, and those that follow. So before and after, these two psalms are, are enveloped in some of the most beloved and familiar psalms in all of the Psalter. But here in the middle are two psalms that are not particularly familiar, but highly important, because they too reveal to us the kingly office of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we must consider what lies before, but we also must consider what lies after. And when we're reading a royal psalm, a psalm that reveals the kingly office of David, 
we must be reminded that that office does not find fulfillment until he of whom they speak comes and takes his place as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So we must consider that Jesus Christ is the one who is found on the lips here. Psalm 21 likewise could easily be found on the heart of Jesus as he emerged from the tomb victorious, rejoicing in the victory of the cross. Psalm 20 could easily be found on the lips of Jesus when he prayed these prayers. Listen, listen to me. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings, your sacrifices. Who is the ultimate and complete sacrifice but Jesus Christ? John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May he grant you your heart's desire. These words could have and very easily were perhaps on the heart and mind of Jesus as he was carrying his, his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. And Psalm 21 could very easily be, have been on the heart of Jesus as he walked out of the empty tomb and took his place as the Lord of glory that he is. So as we rejoice in the many acts of the Lord's faithfulness, not only here but in our lives, let us always be mindful of the ultimate victory of Jesus and the victory that we have in him. For we who are united to Christ, who are in Christ, share in his victory at Calvary. Now Psalm 21 can be nicely divided into two parts. The first part would be the king. It pictures the king rejoicing in the Lord's victory achieved. And then everything changes. You'll see that in a moment. The king rejoices in the Lord's victory anticipated. This is a victory psalm. It's a psalm of celebration. It celebrates answers to prayer. It celebrates the victory that was prayed for and that God was faithful to give. So the first seven verses, the king rejoices in the Lord's victory achieved or accomplished. The psalm celebrates these particular blessings and it celebrates them particularly. We'll look at that. The immediate context of Psalm 20 and 21 is not known for sure. We, we don't know what battle David was facing. We don't even know if these psalms originally went together, but we know that they're being placed in the Psalter the way they are. They are intended to be together as prayer and answer to prayer. They may uh, not even be talking about the same event, but that really doesn't matter. That they are intended to be read, it, read together is clear from the context here as request and response, as prayer and answer. In the one he pleads for his heart's desire. In the other, he is given his heart's desire. In the one he prays as a priest 
accept my offerings and the like. In the other, he is crowned as a king. In the one, he in the one he prays for protection. In the other, he is granted life eternal. And both of them have two of the Old Testament's wonderful affirmations of faith. Psalm 20, for instance, says some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord. And then we read again in verse 721, for the Lord, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So these first seven verses in this psalm, we see him celebrating the victory. Verse one. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. The tone is first set here, a psalm of rejoicing, of celebration. And we see this both in the first and the last verses. The last verse says, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We sing and worship your power. Why do we gather on the Lord's day such as this? Why do we sing as we did earlier on? Why do we lift our voices in psalm? Because the Lord's faithfulness causes us to sing. We can do nothing else. So the most important activity that we could ever be involved in is the worship of the living God who loved us and gave himself for us. So he celebrates the victory. We see him also enumerating the blessings. Again, I just want to read through these for you. You have given him his heart's desire. He prayed for that. You have not withheld the request from his lips. You meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. This was not a coronation moment but rather he took off his, his warrior's helmet and it was replaced with the crown of royalty. You asked life of him and he gave it to you. Length of days forever and ever. Interesting phrases, which can't be talking about David because David wasn't going to live forever and ever and we know he didn't. So who is the king who will follow David that will live forever and ever. There's this hint to look for someone yet to come. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. Well, what we know of David, he certainly was undeserving of splendor and majesty, was he not? But we know a son of David who deserves it all because he himself is splendor and majesty defined. So he prays for heart's desire, answered prayer, rich blessings, royal approval, life and everlasting life, splendor and majesty, and the abiding presence of the Lord, and the Lord gives it all to him. And then in verse 7, he describes the ground of his hope. 
This is perhaps one of the most wonderful statements in the whole Old Testament regarding one's confidence in the living God. It's as close as we come to a gospel confession in the Old Testament. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Make note of those words, steadfast love, sometimes translated loving kindness. That's a technical Hebrew word, perhaps one of the most important Hebrew words in the canon of the Old Testament, the word chesed, which means God's covenant-keeping love that can never fail. It's what Old Testament saints confessed, their hope in God carrying them through to the end till Messiah came. It's a confession of faith in its purest and simplest form. It's the same thing as saying in the, from the New Testament point of view that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. The Old Testament saint who knew only these things in shadows confessed in the faithfulness of God to keep his promises, to keep his covenant, and to show his loving kindness to them through the length of their days. The king rejoices in the Lord's victory achieved. Yes, even in the Old Testament, the saint could look to Jesus in shadows and in types as the author and perfecter of their faith. Then we come to the second part of the psalm. The king rejoices in the Lord's victory anticipated. No victory in the Old Testament was the final victory. No victory in the Christian life is the final victory, so long as we have breath. Life is hard. Life is a struggle. There are disappointments. There are reversals. There are losses. There are stumblings. All of those are part of the human experience. There are enemies that would bring the church down, that would cause her to compromise. There are things, there are people who would have us discouraged so as not to be faithful to the Lord who loved us. The tone changes dramatically here, starting at verse 8. It changes from the tone of rejoicing to the tone of retribution. A solemn, heavy tone. From the prayer of praise to the pronouncement of perdition. It calls to mind what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says in question and answer 26 regarding Christ as our king. How is Christ our king, it asks. He is our king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and by restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Now these next verses are not words that we would delight, would be as delightful to read, but they are part of scripture and they remind us 
the importance of, of, of being on the Lord's side. You will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them a blazing oven. When you appear, the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. The fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for they will be put to flight. You will aim at their faces with their bows. To be sure, David may be expressing personal confidence, trust in the future victories that the Lord may yet bring his way in battles that are before him. But he also, and hear me on this, he also may be speaking on behalf of his greater son, whose victory at the cross is foreshadowed or foreshadows his return in judgment when he sets all things right. To be sure, the New Testament speaks more of the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ than it does of his mercy. And it speaks much of his mercy, to be sure. The gospel is clear and, and, and set forth in so many wonderful and different ways, but also the warning that those who renege, that those that turn their back, that those who resist, to, to those who seek to destroy the church of Christ, he will defend and he will conquer his enemies. It's not up to us to do that other than to proclaim the gospel, to lift up the cross and to let God do the rest in that regard. He may be speaking of words and thoughts that are on the very mind of his greater son as he came forth victorious from the tomb and anticipated that the day would come when he would return again in power and judgment. Indeed, it is appointed unto humanity to die once and after this the judgment. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And thus the question presses itself upon each of us here and beyond, what have we done with Jesus Christ? How are we related to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? As he prepared for his death, Jesus told his disciples in these words, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. But in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I am so blessed by that promise. Those were, in effect, almost the last words that Jesus had for his disciples. Then he went to prayer, then he went to Calvary, and then he spoke from the cross. The New Testament ends with the book of Revelation, and it could be, it could be argued that this verse from John 16, 33 
is revelation in a nutshell. Because revelation reveals the conflict of the ages between Christ's kingdom and worldly kingdoms, the Babylons of this world and the false prophets and the beasts crawling out of the sea, motivated by the dragon himself. Clearly, the book of Revelation ends with the defeat of all of these and the victorious king reigning forever and forever and forever and forever. The latter part of Psalm 21 speaks of the certainty of this final judgment. No one can hide. Your hand will find out all your enemies. You will find out all who hate you. They speak of the severity of this final judgment. No one can escape. You'll make them a blazing iron uh, oven. And when you appear, the Lord will swallow them up in your wrath. It speaks of the totality of this final judgment. The sins of the fathers are visited upon the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The psalmist says you will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. And then it speaks of the justice of the final judgment. No one can win. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. Do you feel overwhelmed by evil in the world? Do you feel like we, the church, are losing ground? Not to worry. Jesus has promised that he will overcome the world. And this is part of who he is as the king of kings. And these things are hinted at in Psalm 21. If we recognize that Psalm 21 is rightfully read by looking for Jesus. It's intended not to give us facts about David, the psalm is intended to reveal something of David's son. That's the purpose of the royal psalms in the, in, in the Old Testament, in the Psalter. There's one last verse that I want to separate out because we have the response from the people of God in verse 13. If the king rejoices... And I would I, I have in my notes the king in capital letters because I see the king rejoicing is the Lord Jesus sings over us. He rejoices in the Father's victory. And he rejoices in the Father's victory achieved and anticipated. But then there's a response from people like you and me. The people rejoice in the king of kings. If we look at the scriptures and we don't come away in some way seeing the hope that they are intended to reveal to us, then perhaps we've misread them. If we see only law when we read the Bible, if we see only, see only rules 
if we only see more stuff to do, if we feel burdened and heavy laden with, with uh, rules and regulations, perhaps we've misread the scriptures. The law was intended to lead us to Christ, that we might be saved by faith to show us our sin and our need for Christ. It reveals judgment and its severity, not to, not to destroy us, but to awaken us to our need for the Lord Jesus. The people rejoice in the King of Kings. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Haven't we just done that this morning or this afternoon? Haven't we just taken time to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ? To rejoice in his conquest, in his victory, which we share in by faith in him? We could put it this way that we rest in the humiliation of Christ, our Savior. For the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. The humiliation of Christ is what we read about in Philippians 2. That he who is very God did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in human likeness. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death of a cross. It is that in which we trust in that in which we rest as being fully sufficient to deal with all of our sin, all of our own internal personal rebellion, and to change our hearts from within to love the God who saved us. So we rest in the humiliation of Christ. That's where we live. But we also anticipate we anticipate the exaltation of the Lord. Now, to be sure, Jesus has been exalted in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his being seated at the right hand of God. But all that he will be is not yet been made known. But John says that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Philippians 2 says, Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every one. Some will do it to their shame and their regret to those of us who are found in Christ by faith in him, 
by the regenerating work and power of his Holy Spirit, we will take that knee with joy and we will confess his name with exuberance because of what he has done for us. Ephesians would say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Father, awaken us, Lord, to your glory, to your Son, Jesus, to his work at the Calvary, at Calvary, to his glorious resurrection, which, from which he came forth alive. But not only that, offers life and immortality to those, all of those who would look to him in faith. May we be encouraged, Lord, with seeing Jesus in these little corners of the scripture and know, Lord, that, that the scriptures speak of him in every way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. pray together uh, before uh, Pastor Kevin comes back up here and uh, pray and uh, end in benediction for us. Um, uh, what a passage, right? Um, the psalm uh, that is looking forward to the coming Messiah. Um, the words of truth that we, people of God, uh, must hold on to, uh, perhaps especially in this day and age, uh, where we're just so pulled apart by many things that uh, you know, beg our attention, beg our trust and security. Uh, but what will we do when all those foundations are crumbling down? Perhaps for many of us, you know, day in and day out, you, know, you experience that hour by hour. You trust in something, and then you realize, oh my, it's crumbling down. And there comes anxiety, there comes fear. The only foundation, the only rock that we can trust is the King of Kings. as the word has been proclaimed may we sing may we pray uh, with the song that we just sang awake my soul to sing Lord may your spirit overcome all my doubts all my fears so I can put my trust and security and identity in Jesus Christ the true king of the universe true king of this church, the true king of my heart. So can we pray that together? Just asking God 
to awaken our hearts to see Jesus as He is. And as we embark on the new uh, week, uh, new day tomorrow, uh, may we start with the, the truth and foundation and the rock of Jesus Christ having conquered all for us. All our hope is in Him. Let's pray together. When our Savior departed this world, we are told that He lifted up from the Mount of Olives and He raised His hands and blessed His disciples. And that is why ministers in behalf of, in the name of Christ, at the conclusion of the service, raise their hands in the picture of God bestowing his blessing upon his people. These are beautiful words. They are words of life. We call it the benediction. Good words. Let us hear the words of our Lord. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit remain with you always. Amen.